Hi, everybody. I'm Rogers Healy, and welcome back to Rogers That, a podcast dedicated to selling without selling out. And today I have undoubtedly my smartest friend ever, one of my business heroes, somebody who has been consistent. He was a Sigma Chi at SMU like me. I didn't know that till recently, but somebody who is just a mainstay in the world of investing. He is an expert in the world of contextual data analysis. What does that mean? I don't know, but we're both about to find out in just a minute. We have the heroic the legendary, the business icon, the investor to the stars and of the stars, Mr. Chris Camillo. Chris, thanks for coming. Well, I, I don't think I can live up with that, to that intro, but uh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, all words that no one will ever use about me. But today, um, we're going to hear Chris's story and how he has done stuff that is really unheard of. He does not have a background in historical investing, doesn't have the degrees that all these other people have on Wall Street, but he has something that I think is crucial for the world of business and the world of investing. He has a gut instinct. And in our short friendship of a few years, I've learned so much from him simply because I just seeked him out. And I think that people in business and in sales need to be able to do that, where if you don't ask, you don't know. And Chris has been one of the few people that really just genuinely wanted to see me win. And because of that, I'm grateful. So Chris, um, thanks again for coming. And uh, I think a great intro would be you sharing a little bit about your background, your story and how you got where you're at today. Yeah. Um, my background isn't particularly interesting. I was really just about as ordinary of a, I don't know, business guy. Like I went to school, I got a normal job, right? I ended up being a sales guy because I didn't really have any expertise in any individual area. So, you know, I sold stuff for a bunch of companies. And yeah, I but had, you were selling stuff from a young age. You I mean, yeah, I was always entrepreneurial, right? Like I was always doing my own thing, uh, whether it was, you know, washing cars in the neighborhood, uh, always had a weird random job. And I was always kind of, I would say, People used to call me like a hustler when I was a kid because I was always looking for the next thing. How can I, how can I figure out a way to generate some cash for myself as a kid? How old right? were you when it started? Well, I, I've been doing that since I was like 11, 12, right? So whether it was, you know, starting a business, you know, getting a job, uh, I was always kind of money oriented. I guess that's one thing that was a bit different about me, almost like. Was that Alex Keaton? What was that show? From Family Ties? Family Ties. Was it Michael J. Fox? Was Alex Keaton? Yeah, remember he's always into money. Like, oh, that yeah. was the only character I could, like, relate to when I was younger. I was like, that he was just, He just turned 62 yesterday. That'll date you a little bit. Oh, Michael J. Fox. Dude, that's unbelievable. No, I never wore suits and stuff like that. Like, I wasn't formal like he was, but I was always hustling, for, you know, for money. But I, when, as I kind of as I graduated from college, that was kind of very normal, right? I was just, I just got jobs and I just had jobs and I worked really hard. Um, so my jobs were generally in sales or business development. So there wasn't anything really that extraordinary about what I did um, at that age. But the one thing that I had to deal with was not making the amount of money that I wanted in life, right? So I, you realize at some point during your career, I think a lot of us do, that you're kind of like capped. Like you can only move so far so fast. And sometimes you want more than your career is willing to kind of provide for you. So yeah. I had to find another way. And like that journey to figure out another way to, you know, achieve wealth for myself that wasn't really viable through my career was how I ended up here as, as an investor. So how, how, far, <laughs> how far into your career did you kind of make that pivot? Well, it, it's interesting because I had always invested as a kid. Like as a kid, um, even in my, my early teens, I was investing through either my older bro brother's brokerage account or my dad's brokerage account. And this is back in the day when nobody did that. Like back in the 80s, you know, kids weren't investing in stocks, right? So um, I always kind of had that interest and I tried every type of investing, um, like technical investing, like fundamental investing. Uh, every single strategy that you can employ, I read all the books when I was a kid. And the one, you know, like nothing really stuck, nothing really made sense to me, or I wasn't able to really find a lot of success in any of those types of investment, you know, traditional investment strategies. 
but I was also a kid that went to garage sales every week to buy and sell stuff, right? Like I was, I think every like Thursday, Friday and Saturday morning, I would wake up at 5.30 or 6 a.m. And I would either ride my bike or take the public bus around the city. What city was this? Dallas. Oh, wow. Dallas to, to different garage sales or estate sales that I thought were most likely to have mispriced items. So I'd actually study the sales in the newspaper and go to those houses sometimes How the day before you? the sale. 13, 14, not normal. Uh, 15. It's not normal. Yeah. Um, but I would look for garage sales or estate sales that had items that were likely to be mispriced. And what those were most likely to be were male-oriented items. So it could be you know, baseball cards or train sets or men's watches because most estate sales were managed by older females that didn't really understand male-oriented products back then, right? So they, they knew how to price antiques, they knew how to price collectibles, but if it was like a male-oriented thing, they just didn't really care about it. So I was able to get stuff and then resell it immediately. This is pre-eBay, there's what no What would internet. you resell? How, what was the platform for resale? So, so I'll give you an example, like I would buy old fans, uh, like really old fans. What do you mean? Like a like, like a, a fan, like a like oh, a fan. Like that makes air. When <laughs> makes air, and I found a guy who's called. His name was the Fan Man, and all he did, <laughs> no, all he did was collect and buy and sell old fans to restaurants and like places that wanted to have antique fans. He would refurbish them. I didn't sell them for a lot of money. I sold them for like twenty, thirty, forty, fifty bucks each. But I would buy them for like fifty cents or a dollar. Right, these garage sales. So every time I'd find an old fan, I could usually buy it for a dollar and sell it for 30, 40, 50. And I would usually find at least one old fan, and it's crazy, every one to two weeks. So like, there were a lot of products I did that with. Long story short, I did that every weekend, and I would always start off going to the 7-Eleven right here on Lover's Lane, I don't think it's there anymore, and buying a, 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 a um, The one where the vet is now? Yes. Yeah. I would buy a bottle of lemon-flavored Snapple iced tea. And one morning I went in there and they didn't have my lemon flavored Snapple. And I talked to the clerk at the store and he said, well, we have all these other iced teas from like Arizona iced tea, Pepsi's getting into the game and we're no longer going to have two full refrigerator doors of Snapple. So we're carrying less flavors and we run out of it occasionally. So I was like, well, that's interesting. And I, I went home, talked to my older brother and I was like, is this, could this be bad for Snapple? It's like, actually that would be bad for Snapple if it was a national issue. And sure enough, he taught me how to short Snapple with options. And two weeks later they came out with earnings and they were a really hot stock at the time. And this is the first time in the history of the company they came out and said that there was inventory building up in the channel because retailers were giving them less shelf space. So as a 13 year old, I was able to see something over the course of my daily life. Your brother was in the stock game already? He was, he was a broker, right? That's how I, I kind of kind of learned through him. But I saw something as a kid that guys on Wall Street did not see because they were so consumed with analyzing numbers, going to their job every day, right? And just being so focused on all the noise that Wall Street's worried about. They were probably in retail stores and could have seen the same thing that I saw as a kid, but their mind didn't allow them to see it. So I tripled my money in a few weeks. Uh, the these, in the Snapple in the stock. Snapple, by shorting Snapple, by buying put options. Why don't, right? why don't you explain to everyone what that even means, like shorting? I think people might know it, it, the big short. All, what shorting means is essentially you're betting that a stock is going to go down because something bad is going to happen to the company. And that's what happened with Snapple, right? Retailers were carrying less of their product because there was more competition. So the product was was piling up in Snapple warehouses and that's a negative thing for the company. And I knew about it because I saw it at 7-Eleven and I acted on it. So it's, it's what I call observational investing. And it would take another 10 or 15 years before I came back to that because I ultimately had a lot of success, but then I went off to school and college and was interested in other things and my career. But then I'm in my mid twenties and now I found myself in a regular job where I wasn't happy with the amount of money I was making. I was like, I got to start investing. Again. Where were you living here? I was just I was living here in Uptown. You were in Dallas. Yeah, I was in Dallas. Um, I had uh, I had a I don't know, fiance, wife. I don't recall at the time if I was married yet. But we were just trying to move quicker than my job would allow us to move. And I was like, I'm going to go back to investing. And I ultimately went back to that same sort of observational investing that I had success with as a kid. 
and I took it really seriously. I started with $20,000, which is all the savings that I had at the time. And I just started investing in things that I saw. Like I would try to identify change early, like any type of change, changing consumer behavior. So this is still before social media. And before social media. So observational change I would see going out to restaurants or something I would identify at a store, right? So if, if consumers were changing their behavior or if culture was changing and people were starting to like this type of product but not this type of product, I would invest in the products that I thought were going to benefit from that change in culture or consumer behavior. And I would sometimes short the products I thought would be at the other end of the stick. So right? how, how does that work? You're, you're talking about you would invest in a public market or you public do- Public market, stocks, anybody could do this. Like this is just investing in the stock market when you see something over the course of your ordinary life that you think would benefit a company. That's so, it. So I'll give you a perfect example. Like back then, um, I actually worked at a building that was right next door to the Cheesecake Factory, right? Northwest Highway? Uh, yes, Northwest yeah. Highway. And also across the street from P.F. Chang's at the local mall. Well, if you're in New York, you're not going to most of Wall Street at the time was in the East Coast, right? You're not going to really appreciate this junky Americanized Chinese food at P.F. Chang's or the type of food that they serve at Cheesecake Factory because that's kind of looked down upon if you live in a city like New York, honestly, right? But we're here in the middle of the country and I saw something that I had never seen at that time, which were was a chain restaurant that had a three hour wait every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. It was mind blowing to me. Um, and so I made a pretty significant investment uh, in companies like P.F. Chang's, in companies like Cheesecake Factory. Um, at the time, uh, my little brother, uh, I asked him, what do you want to do for your birthday? His 21st birthday. He wanted me to take him to the E3 conference, which is a big gaming conference. Took him to that conference, and all the Wall Street analysts were so focused on the new PlayStation. That was right when the PlayStation came out, and the new Xbox. But nobody was paying attention to this other platform, which was the Nintendo Wii, right? Which was the first time made gaming interactive because Nintendo at the time was a really junky company and no one thought that they could build anything great. But I was able to actually go there and see people actually engage with this gaming system in a way I had never seen before. I'm like, this is going to be the big gaming system. This is the one that everyone's ignoring, but I'm actually seeing them playing this, and all the crowds were going towards this gaming system at this gaming conference. At the time, I put 100% of all the money I had in Nintendo stock, 100%. I owned one stock. Every penny I had, I put into Nintendo. So this it, was 07? Roughly, right, when the Nintendo Wii came out, which is also when the first PlayStation and the first Xbox came out. And the Nintendo uh, Wii ended up being one well, of the most do you remember what, what was the stock price per i don't recall it was so long ago i don't remember the dollar figures i do remember that the stock basically doubled over the course of five or six or seven months i believe um and it was because they couldn't keep him in inventory this and then you know months later wall street came out and said whoa this is crazy like we didn't see this coming how did i see it i saw it because i was actually at the trade show and just spent a lot of time with gamers where Wall Street was so consumed by the noise of the PR and all the money that Microsoft had and PlayStation had and all the hype that they didn't go out and do the real homework, which was basically hanging out with gamers and spending a lot of time in the gaming forums, the online gaming forums, where you could actually see the level of excitement gamers had towards this new system. We. Oui. So, yeah, at the time. So really, it, it, it's about how do we as ordinary people how do we leverage the fact that we're not consumed by all the noise on Wall Street? Because we have our feet deeply embedded in the real world, unlike your average investment professional, right? We live all around the world. We don't all live in one place. Um, we actually are better suited to early detect change in culture and detect change in consumer behavior even earlier than the largest hedge funds and investment banks in the world. Right, because what they are doing on Wall Street, they are looking at data. Um, they're basically looking at transaction data, credit card receipt data. They have they spend millions of dollars uh, to try to figure out what we as consumers did two weeks ago, what we did a month ago. We know what we're doing today, like we know what we're going to do in two weeks. So 
we actually have a huge advantage over Wall Street. And I think that's something that most ordinary people just don't understand and don't appreciate. But it's something that I've known for a long time and I've acted on. Um, and because of that, I've been able to essentially become, I think, one of the best performing individual investors of the last hundred years, like statistically, like what with my returns. Um, so that $20,000 over the course of 15 years, I was able to grow that to, I don't know, $50 million, roughly something like that. So 20,000 to 45 or 50 million over, over 15 years, simply by early detecting change as an ordinary person and connecting the dots of that change to an investable opportunity in the stock market, which sounds, I mean, it sounds pretty simple. It's a little bit more complex than what I just said, but yeah. it's really is fairly simple. Yeah. Well, I, I want to dig into a little bit selfish reasons, but also I think people are going to be fascinated by your story. Um, a lot of the investing I've done, whether it's through real estate or people or in private equity stuff is kind of emotional investing where mm -hmm. I have a hard time selling. Right. And I, I, I think mm -hmm. maybe tell us if you bought Nintendo at a dollar and it got to two dollars, at what point did you have a trigger in your head to go and actually unload the stock? Maybe get us inside that that frame of mind as well. Yeah. So I, what I like to say is that you're investing at the point of um, an information imbalance. So an information imbalance is when you have identified information that the rest of the world or the investing public is not aware of yet. Either they're not aware of it or they don't appreciate it or they don't believe it. So that's the information imbalance. So that's when you make your investment. That's when you invest into the company uh, and you exit your investment at the point of information parity, which is another thing I just kind of made up. Explain but, that. But, but information parity is when that information that you were trading, that you were investing because of, when that information becomes known or fully appreciated by the rest of the world. And that's usually... Your secret's out. Yeah, yeah. And that could... It's not a black or white thing. It's not like one day everybody goes from not knowing to knowing. Usually it, it happens slowly over time, but eventually the company usually comes out and says, guess what, our earnings are way higher than the market anticipated. And the reason for that was XYZ, which was hopefully the thing that you found out about weeks or months ago, right? So when Nintendo came out and started outperforming Wall Street's expectations and earning more money and selling more units than anyone thought they would, and they were like, hey, this is not just a fad, this is like continuing quarter after quarter after quarter, then Wall Street analysts have to say, you know, maybe we were wrong. Maybe Nintendo can be one of the big players in this space, along with Sony and PlayStation, uh, Sony and Microsoft, and we're gonna have to reassess what we think Nintendo should be valued at based on the future growth of this gaming platform that we didn't really appreciate eight, eight or nine months ago, but now we do. So once that happens, that's when you exit. And what's really interesting about this investing methodology is it has nothing to do with stock price. It's not whether you made money or didn't. It's not whether the stock went up 10% or 100%. It's that the information that you thought you had that no one else did have, everybody else does have. So now you have no information edge anymore. You've lost that information edge. So at that point, there's really no reason why you should be invested in the company. You don't know anything that no one, anyone else knows. So, like, why would you be in? Whatever that information is, it's now should theoretically be fully reflected in the price of the company. And that's when you exit the investment. Whether you're up or down is kind of irrelevant. But if you do it right, more times than not, you'll have a positive investment trade. Right? Yeah. Um, I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm getting to the core of the, the of what we're sitting here talking about is that, you know, I look up to you and I respect you and I, I consider you just a, in the most complimentary way, you're just a normal guy, right? I, but, that, but that's the edge, right? Yeah. Like, because people that trade stocks, people that analyze equities on Wall Street, they kind of, 
I don't want to say they all are exactly the same. They all kind of look the same. They all kind of went to this, had the similar degrees. Um, they all kind of work for similar types of companies. Hedge funds and investment banks all kind of feel the same. They all kind of hang out together. They, they watch the same type of news outlets. They all read the Wall Street Journal. They kind of all watch CNBC, right? So it's a herd mentality and they're all thinking the same. They're also geographically concentrated in certain areas of the country, right? So they have a skewed lens. So like we are more deeply embedded in the world that they're trying to interpret. Mm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They're further removed from the thing that they're trying to do than we are. Like we have an inherent advantage. And like, especially, you know, and it's not like you can see everything because like we all have different lifestyles, we have different jobs, but now more than ever with social media, like all of, my investing methodology has transitioned almost entirely to interpreting social media now. That's all I do, right? Because the world has become digitally connected. So now everything is out there for anyone to see if you just want to take the time to look for it. Meaning that all of our, all the things that we love to do, all the things that we love to buy, all the experiences that we hate or that we love, we're talking about on TikTok. We're talking about on Instagram or on Twitter. So you can simply just focus on those platforms and surface trends as they're happening as an ordinary person, simply by knowing what to look for. Um, and Wall Street, you would think they would be doing this, but they don't because it's getting back to your question about what is contextualized data. Contextualized data is data that lives inside of it, it, context, right? It has to be interpreted. So it's not a clean data set. Wall Street likes data sets that are black and white, that are focused on numbers, right? They hate data sets that have to be interpreted. So if there are a lot of people talking about the iPhone on Twitter, let's say we have five times the amount of people talking about the iPhone this year than last year. You can measure you, that? You can measure it and anybody can measure that, but you have to interpret if they're talking about it in a good or a bad way, right? Like, what are they actually saying? And there's a lot of risk in that interpretation. And that's something that I'm really comfortable doing, uh, where a lot of Wall Street analysts are more analytical in the way they think about data and they're not comfortable making those interpretations. So a really good example of this is uh, a few years ago, I guess more than a few years ago now, one of my largest trades was in a company called Newell Brands. Newell Brands used to be called Rubbermaid. Um, at the time, I noticed that there were a huge number of conversations happening on social media centered around DIY slime, so do-it-yourself slime, which is like the slime. Slime? slime. The kids were making slime in their houses with their moms and stuff, right? You know what slime is? Like, yeah, duh. It's just like, they just play with it, right? It's just like slime. It's, it's a huge thing now, but this is when it was first happening. So it's like, what is this DIY slime? There was like all these tutorials and everyone was talking about it. And so if you're an analyst on Wall Street, or if you're a hedge fund manager, and you just randomly hear your kid talking about DIY slime, it's gonna go in one ear and out the other. The same way, whereas if you can't get your local Snapple at the, at the 7-Eleven, you just go on with your day. Well, I've had to retrain my brain that anytime I see something, I have to stop and just like think, okay, is there an investment opportunity there, right? Like, I have to ask the question, what is this? What's happening? Is there, has something changed? And if there, if something has changed, can I connect the dots of that change to an investable opportunity? So in the case of DIY slime, it was becoming a mega trend with kids. What well, year was this? Oh, a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago, nine, 10 years ago. But I was able to research what, was entailed in making slime. And I noticed that the number one ingredient was white Elmer's glue. So like white Elmer's glue is probably like 80% of what goes into making this slime, right? 
And sure enough, you couldn't buy Elmer's glue. It was selling out at every store in the world. Like Home Depot was sold out, Michael's Craft Store. Like you could not buy Elmer's glue. And I was like, who makes Elmer's glue? Newell Brands, they're a publicly traded company. Okay, how big of the company is Elmer's glue? Well, it was a really small part of the company. I think it was like less than 2% of the company was Elmer's glue, which is like, okay, can they really move the needle? Even if Elmer's glue sales double, if they're able to increase capacity and double the sales, is it going Is it going to make a difference at the company? In most companies, maybe not. But with Newell Brands, it was such a slow-growing company, the entire company was growing at like 1.5% or 2% a year. That was it. It was so slow-growing. So if you have a 1.5% or 2% division that essentially almost doubles in size, that could theoretically almost double the growth of the entire company over the course of that year. So I made a huge levered investment in Newell Brands. So who, they were publicly traded at publicly the time? Publicly traded at the time. And sure enough, I was only in the investment for a few months because it was that very next earnings quarter where they came out and they were like, wow, they're like, we cannot even keep up with our <laughs> Elmer's glue. Like we're making Elmer's glue 24 seven, we're increasing capacity. And it actually had a substantial impact on the earnings of Newell Brands that quarter, and the stock went up 17%. And because I was in levered stock options, which allows you to make more money when you're right, it's a, it's a riskier investment, but allows you to lever your investment, meaning if a stock goes up 17%, you might make 300% on your money. So I think I made two or three times my money uh, in over the course of a couple of months, two, three months. Because of slime. Because of slime, but that just that's one of a hundred examples of investments I've made over the past 20 years that was something that anybody in the world could see. Anybody can see it. You just had to learn how to retrain your brain to, when you see it, to stop, connect the dots to an investable opportunity. And the frustrating part is 99 times out of 100, when you do that exercise, you're not going to be able to connect the dots to an investable opportunity or the thing that you found out about, other people already know about, or the investing community already knows about, Wall Street knows about it. So there's not really a trade there. So to a lot of people, it can be really frustrating because it's a lot of like stop and go. It's like, okay, I found something, oh, there's no investment here. So, but you have to keep doing it over and over again. And the, the fun part is, all you have to do is just live your life. You just read social media. So go many to people are going to watch this and just quit their jobs and be like, I'm just going to go to the bar. But, but you to, don't have to quit your job. Yeah. You can just live your life as it normally is. You're pro- like you're probably best apt to, to just keep doing everything exactly the same. Just retrain your brain to observe, observe, yeah. observe and act. Okay, And that's something that anybody can do, no matter what age you are. In fact, the be- I would say most of my biggest trades over the past two decades have been in youth trends and trends that were focused on uh, a non, I don't know, a minority demographic, whether it happens to be, um, you know, something that is to the African-American community or something that is focused on women, for example, because Wall Street is slow to pick up on stuff that is focused on youth or on female female trends, or any trends that are underrepresented demographics. This is all through social media you're finding this. It's the easiest place for me to find it now because the entire world is talking about everything that they do and care about every second of the day, everywhere across the world on social media. So in the past, I could only observe what I could physically see in other people. Now I can literally observe everything in real time so i spend four to five hours a day usually at night just ingesting TikTok, ingesting ingesting twitter now i look i do search terms though i i look for things i look for things that are selling out i look for things like one of my favorite words to search for is the word obsessed because when people use the word Yeah, when people, just not even a hashtag, not the hashtag, just the word. I combine the word with other words. So like if you combine the word obsessed with the word makeup, you're going to see what makeup girls are obsessed with at that moment in time. Or like, do you see what I'm saying? So you have to use lots of different word combinations. Um, 
there was i'm sorry this is the one last story no, this no, is another this one of awesome. my favorite investments uh, a few years ago uh, i came across a trending topic on twitter because there was a youtuber by the name of jeffrey star who is one of the largest like makeup kind of skincare influencers in the world and he usually only talks about really high-end skincare products but he tested a local drugstore product called elf cosmetics uh, primer putty i'm probably not it's been a while since i made this investment so i might not be saying it right but it was like a five dollar product they sell at walgreens and cvs and he was like this putty primer is as good as my favorite one which is like sixty dollars and i think he got like 12 million views on his youtube video and i immediately drove down to this local cvs and just stood there in the aisle for like two hours and watch <laughs> moms coming in with their kids and buying out all the elf cosmetics products and i immediately made a huge investment in elf cosmetics which was like just a junky drugstore you know skincare and makeup brand well sure enough the next quarter they destroyed earnings they were like oh we've never seen business like this before uh i don't recall i think they might have attributed it to the jeffree star video but what was amazing oh is that i actually in my due diligence to try to figure out the extent to which wall street knew about this or didn't know about this I found one of the analysts that covered Elf Cosmetics who worked for one of the big banks on Wall Street, and I called him up just randomly, because these are just normal people, right? They're not like celebrities. You can just call them up and talk, talk to them if you want. Um, and I said, hey, uh, do you cover Elf Cosmetics? Have you seen what was what's going on with Jeffree Star? And his, his words to me were, who's Jeffree Star? No way. Yeah, so so that's what you're dealing with. They don't even know who they didn't even know who Jeffrey's. How can you be on Wall Street? Your job is to cover the skincare and makeup industry, and yet you don't know the largest social influencer in the world. You don't know who that is over makeup. Like, but this is a long time ago. This is like I don't know. Again, this is like going back eight years, eight nine years. But still, how? How do you not know that? So that was a huge one. I think that stock's probably up, I think it's like up 10X at this point over the last seven years. It's, it, that single YouTube video changed the traje tra trajectory for Elf Cosmetics and allowed the world to say, hey, I don't care if it's cheap, it's good because one YouTuber said it was good and then people realized, you know what? I, I can spend, you know, 80% less and get yeah. the same quality. I used to watch Oprah in college, and I remember, um, which, man, I don't know if that's a confession I need to make, but I'm fascinated no. by Oprah. And I remember she used to do her favorite things, and whenever those things would come out, and this, I would watch it just as a fan, not as a business person. And totally. whether it was a book that she read or it was – I remember she she, she single-handedly, like, killed the – like meat business or something like that. I don't know what it was like something about a hamburger but I was watching this and it just got me kind of thinking different you okay yes but that listen there's like there's like a I have a story for almost every different type of product and I've invested <coughs> I've invested in almost every single industry sector um, there's opportunities everywhere like the second you walk outside like there's opportunities to discover the next big thing and I, I kind of take it all back to my early days garage selling as a kid like garage selling to me was kind of like mining for gold you just never knew what you were going to find on a weekend and, and when i was a kid it was always like you know i'm going to find the rolex watch in the shoe box yeah. you know and that's what you dreamed about and and once there was a guy that did find the rolex in the box he got there five minutes before me oh. and, and bought the rolex in, in the shoe box and that's kind of always was the dream but I'm still doing it today. I'm just doing it looking for the undiscovered trend, the undiscovered change in culture or consumer behavior that the rest of the world might be a day late discovering or a week late discovering. If I could discover it even hours before other people can and trade on that, it could be the opportunity of a lifetime. And I always think the next big thing is in front of me. I know it is. It's just a matter of is it tomorrow or is it next year? I have no idea. Have you ever had a uh, strikeout? 
You've ever had something I, that you thought was going to be massive and that it wasn't? I have because, you know, part of the part of the issue with this type of investing is you're usually investing in one piece of information. And sometimes, you know, companies are complex and the things that impact companies uh, are numerous. So even if you're right with the thing that you're the information that you're trading, there could be something else happening to that company during that trade window that is more important than the thing that you're trading, right? Uh, there could be something happening to the stock market at large, like what we saw in 2008 or what we're seeing right now, yeah. uh, to where even if you're right and this, you know, this trend is positively impacting their sales that quarter, if the stock market went down 10% that quarter, it's not going to matter because generally all stocks got hit. So there's no such thing as a sure thing in the world of investing because there's too many variables and there's always risk involved. You just have to understand what those risks are and be okay with it. Hmm. Um, but for me, um, I think the way that most people can circumvent that fear is to find money in their life that they're willing to take a risk with. I think probably one of the biggest differences between people that have a lot of wealth and people that don't are people that have wealth have risk capital or have had risk capital at some point in their life, capital that they were able to take a risk with. Whether that risk is investing in the stock market or that risk is investing in a company that was started by an old colleague of yours or an old college friend that you know is amazing and you believe in them. But if you don't have money that you're willing to take a risk with, then you're never going to have the opportunity to really generate wealth outside of your career or your daily job. So how do we do that? Like, how do we find money that we're okay taking a risk with? Yeah. It's easier said than done because it's really all about psychology. So the one thing that I try to teach people is where can you, how can you invest with other people's money? Now you're not really using other people's money, but what I'm trying to get at is where can you put aside money in your everyday life that you're going to be okay with losing? So are there sacrifices you can make in your life such as, okay, skipping this coffee or you know what? I'm going to not buy the big screen TV this month. I'm going to wait six months until it's $300 less and I'm going to get it then. And I'm going to take the $300 I saved. I'm going to put it in my big, I call it the big money account, right? I'm going to put it in a separate big money account. And that money is only going to go towards something that is risky. Something that I ordinarily would not do because I'm afraid of losing the money, but the money's not really mine. It's like, the money I didn't, I wouldn't have gotten unless I made this trade off in my life, right? Get my hair cut every four weeks instead of every three weeks. Like, there's all kinds of yeah. things. How about like, most of us don't clip coupons. We don't clip coupons because it's like, are you really going to clip a coupon to save a dollar? But what if that dollar was a hundred dollars, right? And like, in the first three years of my investing, when I was in my mid twenties that $20,000 became $2 million in three years. So in three years, by taking big risk on things that I saw in the stock market, <clears throat> I made 100 times my money. So now mentally, I try to think of every dollar as being $100. Because if you're willing to risk that dollar, there's a decent chance that you'll turn it into $100. Maybe not in three years, because that was a really good period of time for me. But at some point, you'll turn it into $100. So now, you might not clip a coupon to save a dollar at the car wash, but would you clip the coupon to save $100? You would, right? So like that little example I told you about, would you wait eight months to get the TV and save $200? You'd be like, no, I want the TV now. But if that $200 is $20,000, yeah. you'll wait eight months. It is $20,000. Wow. It is. It yeah. actually is. It eventually will be $20,000 if you're willing to take that two hundred dollars and invest it really aggressively. And what I mean by that is invest it in levered options and something you really believe in in the stock market, right? Or 
honestly, how about investing in a startup? Because that's the other half of what I do. I'm invested in 70 early stage companies. Um, and a lot of them I'll lose all my money on, but some of them I'll make 100 times my money on or 50 times my money on, right? So most people are not gonna take you know, $5,000 and just throw it at a random person they went to college with who's starting a company. Because that's like $5,000, that, that's insane. But if you're setting aside a separate account where you're putting money to do specifically to do that with. So you literally have an account just for the fun money stuff. I don't because I'm able to mentally you. You separate it in head. my head. I got you. But I think for most people, you might need to have a separate account because mentally it's too difficult to separate it unless it's really separated, yeah. right? Um, but the idea is you have to figure out if every dollar is $100, um, you're going to start thinking differently about money, about saving money, about making sacrifices and trade-offs to find money that you could then put in this account, right? Clipping coupons, like literally today, we can all, everyone, me and you could start clipping coupons today. I know neither of us probably do, but you can do that and you'll just start slowly putting money on every coupon you clip that you save, you take that money and you put it in that account mm. every single time, right? Yeah. Such a it's such a high level scaled way of thinking, but it's also not it's yeah. not incredibly difficult. You just gotta kinda commit to it. And it's just it's real. Like yeah. it just it's it, and listen, I'm the proof, it's real. Like it's not theoretical. Like I turned twenty thousand to two million in three years, but a lot of those were risky investments. Like I told you, I had a hundred percent of that account in Nintendo, right? Who puts a hundred percent of their investment account in anyone? We've been taught forever diversification. Yeah. Right? Fine, diversify your retirement account. That's fine. Of course, diversify all that the normal way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about doing something different, right? So is there an account that you can have that you can take that money and you can invest that money in the same way that aggressive high net worth well people invest their money, right? Because they all have money that they take risk with, yeah. right? I'm at a point in my life now where, yeah, I have money that I can take a risk with. I can invest in startups. I could invest in a levered option on, you know, I saw a toy trending and I want to go all in on this toy company. But if I'm wrong, I lose all my money. But I'm okay doing that because I have enough money that I could do it with a small part of my money. Yeah. So everybody has to figure out how to create that account for themselves. You don't have to wait until you're wealthy to do it. You can just start right now. Smart. So, so let's get to the advice part. People are watching this. They want to be a version of you. They want to be able to invest. They want to be able to have dumb money. They want to have, you know, yeah. kind of the gambling. What, what's the advice for everybody watching, no matter their background? Well, and by the way, you said dumb money because that's the name of my YouTube channel, uh, Dumb Money TV. But it's dumb money TV. But I want to make sure that everyone understands what dumb money is. Dumb money is what Wall Street calls us, right? So smart money is what Wall Street calls like Wall you Street know, people. Wall Street people, yeah. right? They call us dumb money. And so that was kind of the joke. Like I'm technically dumb money, but yet my performance over the past two decades beats out every hedge fund in the history of Wall Street. Like no one has done I have, I think I've averaged I think sixty eight percent annualized returns now for seventeen years in a row. So it's like that doesn't happen on Wall Street. And so I'm dumb money. I'm just a normal person. And we called the YouTube channel Dumb Money because we wanted people to understand that we inherently have an advantage over Wall Street. Dumb money is preferred <laughs> if you do it right. Um, but what do I recommend people do? The most important thing is just to become part of the investor class, period. Doesn't matter, like beyond the weird stuff that I do, taking big risk and all that stuff, you have to start investing, period. Uh, that is maybe the most important thing for anyone, no matter where you live, no matter what age you are. My goal in life is to bridge every human on earth into the investor class. That's my entire life mission. Um, it's the only way that will ever combat the wealth gap because the income gap is ex really difficult to tackle, right? Because we could only do so much with the income gap. But the wealth gap is a solvable problem because it doesn't matter how much income you make, you have control over your wealth by becoming part of the investor class. You might never make more than $35,000 a year for the rest of your life. That doesn't mean you can't be a millionaire, right? Like, so it's not preventing you from being part of the investor class and making hundreds of thousands a year. In fact, 
when I started investing in my mid-20s, it only took me a few years with that $20,000. And I was making a good salary. I mean, I was making a quarter of a million dollars a year wow. as, a, as a salesperson, but that was not enough for me at the time. Um, within a few years, that $20,000 turned into enough to where I was then making more money with my investments than I was in my salary. And I eventually quit my job and I never looked back. So um, the goal I think for everyone is how can you start an investment account to where the money you make with that investment account ultimately eclipses how much money you make mm -hmm. from your job. right? And then you have options. Wow. Not saying you should quit your job, but you have options, right? And you can work for fun. Yes, exactly. So the number one thing to do is to just start investing and not to be intimidated by thinking that you can't invest because you don't have enough money to invest or that you don't know how to invest because you have a huge advantage. I mean, listen, I'm not trying, I don't really sell my books because they're out of circulation, but I wrote a book called Laughing at Wall Street. In 2011. In 2011. And it's a very simple book that a five-year-old can read and really understand how they could start doing this stuff. And then Jack Schwager, who's like the most iconic investment author of all time, writes a book every 10 years on like the 10 greatest investors of the decade. And I was fortunate enough to get included in his last one called... Uh, market wizard unknown market wizards which is the first book he ever wrote about non-wall street investors wow and i was one of i think six five or six uh equity investors featured in that book and his chapter on what i do is so brilliant it, i highly recommend people read that book but at least the chapter on me in that book because i've read it like 30 times because like I could never write that chapter he did a better job explaining what i do than i can explain wow. what what i do um, but just get started. Try to look, try to envision that every dollar in your life is $100 and see how that changes your decision making. Um, are you willing to mow your own lawn now? Are you willing to clip coupons? Are you willing to get your hair done? Well, they'll, you know, they'll learn about opportunity costs for, too by doing it. Uh, yeah, yeah, opportunity costs. You just have to make your own decisions. Uh, but when you start viewing every dollar as $100, it changes everything. Then take the money you make because of those, uh, those trade-offs and just put that money in a big money account that you're just gonna not do anything with until an opportunity arises, because it always will. And then I would say start looking for people in your life. Now this is the most controversial belief that I have in business that I don't think anybody seems to agree with. Uh, but I have absolute conviction it's true, and I've never said it before uh, out loud. But I'm gonna do a YouTube uh, on this pretty soon. Wow. Is, uh, and you might you might be pissed at me for saying this because you might you might disagree. For sale by owner, uh, what? No. Never invest in yourself. Like everybody tells you the opposite. Everyone's like, the best thing you can invest in is yourself. I could not disagree more. Um, if you think about how many brilliant, hardworking people there are out in the world, uh, the one percent or who makes it really big, right? What are the chances that you're in that 1%? Probably 1%, right? Yeah. So like, uh, you're probably better at finding the next Steve Jobs than being the fact that you are the next Steve Jobs. Yeah. And maybe you are. No, no, Obviously, no, I... one, one in 100 or one in 1,000, you maybe are, right? But um, it's easier to find the one that's already gotten through absolutely. The, the, the phases. Most of us went to high school. A lot of us went to college. A lot of us have jobs. Think about all the people you you intersect with in life between your high school, your college, and then your job, and then your neighborhood, and your family, and your friend network. Yeah. You need to find the best three or four or five people in your life from the past 20, 30 years, reconnect with them and see what the hell they're doing. Look for people that are doing great things. If they're starting companies, or even if they're involved with other people that are starting companies, or maybe they're investing in other, someone in your life is in a network to where they're getting access to investment deals yeah. or their own deals. Find those people, try to look for the opportunities while you're creating this big money account. And then at some point, you're gonna have the opportunity. Usually it's like a $10,000 minimum to do anything in the early stage investing world, yeah. right? So you kinda of need to save 10,000 for that. But in the stock market, you can invest $10. Yeah. So like, you can open a Robinhood account. There's no commissions, right? You can, you can start investing right now. So whether you, you determine that you're gonna be an observational investor and start investing in the things that you see, um, 
like me or whether you're going to invest in you know early stage startups it really doesn't matter just start investing figure out how to find money in your life that you can allocate to higher risk higher reward investments and figure that out and do it and then start looking for people that you can learn from or people you could partner with or people that you can invest in from your life hmm. it's just that simple it doesn't happen overnight it'll take a few years but start now um and just do it and then you just you're, you'll start off not knowing what the hell you're doing and then in about 10 or 15 years you'll get better no pressure see <laughs> see, in, see in 10 or 15 years and it's 10 or 15 years right. i mean what unless you're like 80 right now you got 10 or 15 years right you can do it yeah it's fun i i um you could obviously hijack this podcast anytime you want because this is just absolutely fascinating and just to listen to you speak and to hear you say it in such a clairvoyant way is um it's invigorating it's 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 very simple right and i think seinfeld the most successful show ever is a show about nothing you live your life like anybody would live their life you just observe differently and that to me is what is fascinating but the way that you sell without being a sellout is that you don't have to go and work on wall street and have a degree from harvard mm -hmm. to be able to be one of the most iconic investors ever through observational you know investing or whatever the, the fancy term was so um i think we could all learn a lot from chris um i learn every time i'm around him and there's not a lot of people in my life that truly fascinate me and when i met him just like y'all are meeting today i was just like what is this what i want to cling to this guy and i think that to play off what you were saying with the three or four people that you know you want to be around uh, I, I learned early on that you're a product of the people you hang around with the most and i don't get to see them that often but when i do i just kind of I'm, I'm left wanting more which is not something that uh, normally happens um, as an adult so thank you for sharing all that you did um, i learned a lot um, including I'm a, I can't invest in myself anymore. I'm going to go work for Chris because um, we're going to go find the next Nintendo. But whether it's slime, whether it's Snapple, whether it's a fan or a watch or whatever, it just goes back to how you know I kind of led into this is that you just are trusting your gut. And to have a 68% annualized return for 17 years in a row, uh, the common thread is you. So um, that to me is what fascinates me and what made me want to have him uh, as a guest on this is that he epitomizes what it's like to just be yourself for a living and i think that as you find success and you make money it's really easy to get tempted to get sucked into the stuff that really doesn't matter but all this stuff too revolves around him being with his family and being present and always being himself so uh, thank you so much on behalf of everybody watching but especially me this has been just awesome and um we're very grateful for your time today so thank you it's been fun yeah I'm Chris Camillo, and that's how you sell without selling out. Rogers that.